In 2016, ProPublica published a now famous article in the AI ethics space, which showed that judges were using AI that was biased against Black people. More specifically, it was an algorithm that predicted that Black people are twice as more likely to commit a crime than white people, all else being equal. Famous case really jump-started or really kicked off a tremendous amount of at least additional research or increased research and certainly widespread attention to the area of bias in AI. Now, when we talk about bias in AI, we're often talking about things like AI in mortgage predictions or job interviews or facial recognition software, but we don't spend too much time talking about bias in AI in the criminal justice system. And so that's what this conversation with Peter is really about, how we can use AI not only to do as well as humans with regards to bias, but even better than humans. So one of the things that Peter is focused on is defending what he calls algorithmic abolitionism. Algorithmic abolitionism. The idea is that minor reform to the police system is not going to do enough for the sake of justice, racial justice and social justice more generally. On the other hand, says Peter, the defund the police movement is a sort of non-starter. That's not the way to go either. We need a criminal justice system. We need a police force. And we cannot hope to defund it and also do well. In fact, the people who need help the most are those people of color who are biased and biased or discriminated against in the criminal justice system. So we do need the police. And defunding is not the answer. But, argues Peter, if we use algorithms machine learning in the right sort of way and other kinds of automated systems, we can drastically, drastically reduce the quantity of people in prison, which includes drastically reducing the quantity of people that are in prison by virtue of the color of their skin. So algorithmic abolitionism is supposed to be a kind of midway point between reforming of the criminal justice system and police in particular on the one hand and defunding it on the other. Now, there's two big things that are going on here that I want to highlight that you'll see in the conversation that I think are really interesting. One is that when we think about AI in the criminal justice system, especially in light of that ProPublica article, we get very nervous. But one thing that Peter keeps coming back to, rightfully so, I think, and interestingly, is that we have to think about what the benchmark is for success here. What's the benchmark for better than humans? And as he points out, and I've heard this from, he's a professor of law. I've heard this from many others who are professors of law. The current system is really, really terrible. It's really bad. There's lots of ways to make tremendous amounts of mistake. Some of it is bad apples, but a lot of it is just the fact that humans are bad at predicting the future. And when we're talking about things, predicting the probability that someone's going to commit a crime in the next two years or something along those lines, if you're, if, say, they're up for probation, or predicting what the appropriate sentencing is for deferring crime, we're just really bad at it, not because we're bad people, but because there are too many variables involved. But using AI to track and analyze all that data to make better predictions is a very interesting alternative. And again, the benchmark for doing better than us is not very high. In fact, Peter at one point says that the parole board judgments are no better than chance, no better than the flip of a coin, which is fairly, fairly terrifying. That's one thing to think about. One big issue. The other big issue, when we get at this towards the end of the conversation, is are we really thinking about bias in AI in the right kind of way? And I've had other kinds of conversations uh, with other people about this, but Peter's take is 
I think particularly interesting. It's something like, look, take two worlds, and he's gonna he's gonna go through this thought experiment in our conversation. But take two worlds in scenario one, you have a million people who are imprisoned, and you have uh, you have twenty percent of a minority population, let's say the black population, in prison when black people only constitute fifteen percent of the population. So you're biased by five percentage points, and that's really bad. You have something like fifty thousand people in prison, black people in prison that way. Suppose that you engage in this algorithmic abolitionism venture, so to speak, and as a result, you only put 10,000 people in prison while holding crime rates constant. That's crucial. The claim is that we can drastically reduce how much imprisonment we do while keeping crime rates constant because we're really bad at doing it and machines can be much better at it. And let's say 25% of black people are in prison, 25% of those 10,000 are black, so it's worse by 10 points. Because before in scenario one, it was only 20% of black people, and now it's 25%. And if you just think about bias or discrimination in terms of whether things are sort of, if you like, fairly distributed, then you're going to get the result that scenario two is really bad. But in scenario two, you only have 1,000 black people in prison compared to 50,000 black people in prison. So don't we think that that second scenario even though the distribution is worse in a more just, including racially just society, isn't that what we should be aiming for? That's another one of these really interesting takes on we're thinking about bias and AI wrong. And if we change how we think about it, if we think not about how you distribute things fairly, but what a just society looks like, we're going to get better outcomes. At least that's what Peter and I discuss. I thought this conversation was absolutely fascinating and i hope you do too and by the way i've never asked this before because i'm really bad at it but if you like this podcast please go give it a five-star rating say nice things about it i'd really appreciate it all right on with the show all right peter so you wrote this article that certainly caught my attention Algorithmic abolitionism. So, super sexy title, especially for a law paper. So, what? Thank you. I, I work hard on the titles. It's important, right? It's got to be grabby. Everyone knows that lawyers yeah, love grabby or, titles, or, or else nobody clicks through. So, that's, that's yeah. right. So, what's what's the main view? I mean, I think I sort of get it, but what's the main view of algorithmic abolitionism? So, I'll give you the setup, and then I'll tell you what I think the two payoffs of the article are. So the setup is, you know, sort of around the time of the sort of post-George Floyd national protests, the Black Lives Matter protests, this idea, which would have previously been, I think, considered a radical idea, including by the people who believed it, right, that uh, you can't really, I, I guess, first, that policing and prison are actually, like, bad, right, that, like, they're a cost and not a benefit, you know, um, in, uh, in gross, right? We'll talk about the net in terms of preventing crime, but like, you know, stopping someone on the street, searching them, arresting them, putting them in prison, that actually that's like, that's bad. Like, you know, all things equal, we shouldn't want that. That it's actually much more costly to do this, to put people in prison and to and to police them than, than it seems at first that, you know, just prison conditions are horrible, that police kill people with some regularity, and even mundane things like the idea that getting arrested 
can have these spirals of, say, like economic impact on your life that can be in some ways life ruining. Okay, so so these these radicals kind of convince everybody that policing and prison are bad, and that like reforming them that I don't know doing anti bias training, let's say, for police officers, yeah. isn't going to meaningfully make them better. And and they convince like I think what I think of as of kind of a lot of like normal normie liberals that 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 in fact the only way to meaningfully reduce the bad stuff that policing and prison cause is to get rid of them to do less of them and so this the defund the police abolish prisons idea sort of breaks into the mainstream and like legislatures vote for it right the minneapolis city council you know where where george floyd was killed pledges to defund, to to abolish the Minneapolis police force and replace it with something else. Other big cities, New York, San Francisco, pledge big cuts to their police department and do it. But then 2021 happens, crime ticks up even just incrementally, and Minneapolis never does get around to abolishing their police force. New York, San Francisco, they forgot. (laughs) New York, San Francisco are now funding their police at higher levels than they had prior to the cuts. And I think it's because people who were convinced by this sort of but-for argument, this idea that like uh, all things equal, prison and police are bad and we should get rid of them. Sort of remember that all things aren't, aren't equal and there's this problem of, of crime, which is, which is a serious problem. And it's a serious problem for the same people who prison and police harm the most, right? If you are low income, if you are a person of color, not only are you disproportionately likely to be put in prison, to be victimized by uh, over policing, but also to be a victim of crime, including violent, violent crime. So we say, okay, well, actually, it, it turns out we need prison policing, and the, the 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 movement sort of goes nowhere. Sorry, I just interrupted you. No, that's cool. No, so so look, I mean, I take it that we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. I take it that you're you're broadly sympathetic with, as you call, the radicals' claim. That, I mean, there's a radical claim that is not so ra- the radicals' claim that's not so radical, which is that policing in prison is bad. In fact, that's part of the point of it, right? If it weren't, if it weren't bad, it wouldn't deter. Insofar as we think that part of the function is to deter, we want it, prison, for instance, to be bad because otherwise people would want to go, right? So right. we don't want that. So you're sympathetic. You agree with the claim that it's bad. And then the question is, so what do we do about it? And it seems like defunding is, frankly, it's an, it's, it strikes me, I mean, it strikes me as a, you know, progressive person, I think. It strikes me as insane <laughs> to, to, to defund the police because... Crime doesn't just go away. And then there's your really nice point, which is that, well, who suffers the most disproportionately from crime? It's the people that are also overly victimized by the criminal justice system. So we're not going to protect them. So that's that's the that's the place where we find ourselves, between a rock and a hard place. And it might look like something like bias training or something like that is going to be the only kind of reform that's going to work. Right. So it might be the only thing we can do, or at least looks like we're in this between this rock and a hard place. And the only thing that we can do, at least it seems, are these kind of modest reforms, anti-bias training stuff that we just know empirically have very little effect. Okay, so that's the setup. Here's the paper. The paper says, well, the abolitionists are right, but then so are the people like you who think that crime is bad are right. And if you could both be right, if there was a way to dramatically reduce the amount of policing, radically reduce the amount of incarceration that we did as a country without increasing serious crime, violent crime, serious property crimes. Okay, well then like that would be the thing we should do. Sure. And the paper Magic says, wand. sorry, what's that? Magic wand it. Magic wand it. And the paper says, actually maybe there's a magic wand. Yeah. At least to some extent. 
And the magic wand runs through machine learning algorithms. So the basic idea is that you can train a sophisticated machine learning algorithm to sort out the instances of policing, say a search or incarceration that will be useful in preventing crime from those that won't. And the algorithm is much better at this than humans are. And so to the extent to which an algorithm can correctly identify, you know, who's carrying an illegal weapon, who, if released pre or post trial, will go do more crimes and who won't, the won't is the crucial part, yeah. that we could release all the people who won't go commit more crimes and not stop and search and arrest people who don't have illegal firearms. And that by letting these powerful predictive engines help determine who we police and who we incarcerate, and specifically design our policies around doing as little of those things, policing and incarceration, as possible while holding crime constant, that we can get rid of a lot of prison and policing, and we wouldn't have this downside effect of, of more crime. Okay, so, so that caveat is really important, right? That keeping crime levels the same or something, something along, you know, crime levels the same or better. So the idea is something like wheel in this new tool, machine learning. I mean, you know, I'm sure what I mean by new, but wheel in this tool that is machine learning and use it in various places throughout the criminal justice system. So it looks like it sounded like whether you stop someone because you mentioned something like uh, determining, predicting the likelihood that they have, they have a weapon on them or something along those lines. Yeah. Predictions to do with sentencing guidelines or something like that. You know, what's the likelihood that they're going to commit a crime in the next two years or something like that. Yep. And if you use this tool, what you'll find is that because it's better than humans, so, so goes the claim, because it's better than humans, we can actually reduce a lot of the, the unnecessary bad stuff. We can stop jailing or we can sort of give a lot shorter sentences because we'll, first of all, we just, we won't convict a bunch of people who don't need to be convicted. We won't well, we might convict them and not punish them, right? I mean, okay. there's a difference between yeah. asking, did you commit a crime and do we need to send you to prison? But but yes, there will be many people who we don't. But you, you predict that they're a phenomenally low likelihood to ever do it again. And so you yeah. just don't put them in prison. It's because the, the, the deterrence effect doesn't hold for that individual, something like yeah. that. That's interesting. Okay, so skeptical from a number of fronts, or there's reasons to be skeptical from a number of fronts. So yeah. one... One, of course, I say, okay, it's not a magic wand, it's just magic thinking about the powers of machine learning. There's no way in hell that machine learning is going to be better at us than all these things. So, so first, I guess I want to hear what's the empirical evidence around thinking that they are better, what does better look like? And then ethical, ethic, there's a number of ethical concerns that already pop up. One is that it sounds, at least in the case where you're talking about looking to see whether someone is holding a weapon, I guess that it's going to include some kind of you know, using a camera to surveil people. So there's a worry about privacy violations in a way that we don't have now. Maybe we already do have those, but privacy violations. And then, of course, the thing that's on everyone's mind who is sort of in this space vaguely is worried about biased algorithms because we're all familiar with that Compass software that, you know, systematically discriminate against black people, thinking that they're something like twice as likely to commit a crime in the next two years. So I know that's a lot of stuff, but so there's... Yeah. Let, let's start with... Great. Let's start. Let's put the ethical concerns to the side. Just talk about effectiveness. I mean, should we actually believe that they're so powerful to make these predictions better than people do? Yeah. So, look, I am a law professor. I'm not a computer scientist. So, you know, the best thing I can tell you is what the empirical evidence that the 
computer scientists have published says and how it works. So we have a number of now, I think, really pretty high quality empirical studies published in top economics and criminal, quantitative criminology, criminology journals that try to estimate the difference in the predictive ability of humans versus machine learning algorithms at, at, at a bunch of these different functions, everything from uh, predicting who uh, might commit more crimes if released uh, pre-trial, right? So pre-trial, like jailing is one place. Uh, and then there's like post-conviction incarceration, right? Uh, the study, the main study we have on this is on, on parole, people who are eligible for parole, the parole board makes a decision largely on the basis of whether they think this person is um, uh, likely to be a danger to their community if released. Uh, we have high quality study on Terry stops. So basically police stops on the street uh, to search for things like contraband, like, like illegal weapons. And the, these studies work on, they're, 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 they're run over real data, right? So we actually have records of the people who are arrested and then considered for pretrial release and uh, parole. We have records of who police stop and whether they found a gun uh, or some other uh, illegal uh, item on, on a person. And so we can actually like see whether once we've trained the algorithm, once we've served, I won't do a primer on how you, how you train a machine or learning algorithm, sure. but once you've given it the, the, a bunch of training data, and once it's learned to predict one of these outcomes to the best of its ability, we can actually just run it over the real life data, data it hasn't seen it and ask, like, did it get, get the answers right? Yeah. So let, let's take the parole case. So I guess it goes like yeah. this. Well, we, we have data, I assume someone or other has data about, I guess, you know, so the parole board says they're not a threat. And we have data about how often they're wrong and how often they're how often they're right. Correct. So we then, we we know who who was up for parole. We know who was released. We know who was eventually rearrested for a crime. Right. And we can simply ask: Did the parole board do a good job releasing only those people who are not, in fact, a danger to their communities? Well, I mean, but what you don't know is the people that they didn't release whether they would have committed. Right. So this is the selective labels problem. Let me tell you about the, I'll tell you about sort of the, the results you get running the algorithm. Then I'll tell you about the sort of controls or the, or the robustness checks against the selective labels problem. So you're right. So what we have is data on the people who say the parole report did release mm -hmm. and whether they were subsequently rearrested for various kinds of crime. What we don't have is data on what the people who were not released would have done if they had been released. Right. So the paper I uh, talk about in the article, and I'm, this is off the top of my head, so these numbers are, are close, but they're not going to be accurate yeah, sure. down to the percentage point. It's a New York data over many years period. I think it's like a six or eight year period. Gets a whole bunch of people eligible for parole. They release about, I think, 20% of them, at least for the first period of the study. Okay. The, if I'm remembering correctly, the algorithm would have released 80% of them, right? So that's a 40 point difference in, okay. in incarceration and that's holding crime constant, right? So by, by choosing to incarcerate that small, relatively small handful of people who the algorithm can reliably identify as likely to commit a crime and then releasing many, many more people who the algorithm predicts will be unlikely to commit a crime, but who the parole board nevertheless sends back to jail. 
the algorithm would say, okay, we think 80%, not 20% of the parole okay, eligible so, population should be released. So, okay, so let me see if I have this right. It, it, goes, it goes something like this. All right, so we get our machine learning model to be really good at matching, if not doing better than at predicting which of the people are going to go in to commit a crime. And yes. we do that just with, here's in fact the data we have about people who were released and who, and who later committed a crime. Right. And we sort of, we give that, we give that same data that the parole board considered or something like the same data as the parole board. Um, and the machine learning algorithm does, let's just say, at least as good. And then you take that same algorithm and you apply it to the people, the profiles of the people who they did not give parole to. And the algorithm says, actually, these, whatever, whatever you said, 60% extra, 40% others meet the same criteria for, for getting parole, but they weren't given parole. So we Correct. have reason to think, insofar as the, we already think that the machine learning algorithm is at least as accurate as the parole board when it comes to saying these people are cool, they're not gonna they're not gonna get crimes. Then we just take that accurate model and apply it to all those other people. And then I guess the explanation is something like the reason that the parole board denied parole to those other people it has something to do with bias. They were sleepy. They were distracted. They didn't do their due diligence. Blah blah blah. Whatever. There's a, a variety of reasons why they just. Yeah were subpar um, for those other profiles. Yeah, I, I would say the most ordinary reason, you don't even have to infer nefariousness on the part of the parole board. It's just hard to predict things, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard. It's humans are, you know. Highly fallible. Highly fallible. And even when we try really hard to, to yeah. predict uh, what's going to happen in the future, it's extremely difficult. And, you know, it's the reason we use algorithms for doing things like stock markets, like, you know, the, the best hedge funds in the world use algorithms yeah. to, to trade securities because, you know, humans eyeballing things are worse than um, models of predicting things. But yes, I think I think your description of what's going on is right. I would say the, the other element that you didn't mention, it's not just that there are a bunch of people who the parole board does send back to prison, who the algorithm predicts are quite unlikely to commit crimes. There are a bunch of people that the parole board releases who we know go on to commit mm. crimes. And the algorithms right. like, can identify these people with much better accuracy than the, yeah. the, the parole board. Okay. So one, and I, so two kinds of concerns. One is just the bias stuff. Everyone, and anyone who's listening to this, they're thinking, surely this stuff is going to be biased against black people or other people of color or so do we are we really capable of of sufficiently debiasing these machine learning models the second thing is sort of like i guess an ex, it's an expression of discomfort and i'm not i'm not sure it's an ethical objection so i just want to hear what you have to say about it cuz i'm sure you have something which is it feels dystopian we call this you know this convict before the parole board he sits before a computer program and a thing pops up that says you know Denied or granted, and off off that person goes. That seems crazy. I guess in the approved case, the the prisoners just like awesome. Off I go. Whereas the onlookers are, you know, the prison guards and you know the family of the person that person hurt is like holy shit. The computer says free the guy and now he's free. That's crazy. And then on the other hand, if it says deny, then the Criminals like this is insane. This computer just says no, no. Now I have to stay in jail. What? So that just seems rather dystopian. Not, not ideal. Not, not something for which progressives, for instance, you know, are fighting for some version of abolitionism, ought to be comfortable with. But I don't know. Maybe that concern is misplaced. Maybe it has something to do with 
it feels that way because they don't comprehend just how accurate this thing is, and we have to sort of re retrain our emotional response to the outputs of machine learning, at least in some cases where there's sufficient evidence that the thing is really accurate or better than humans. I don't know. Is that, is that how we should think about this? Yeah. Uh, should we do? I'll do them in reverse. We'll talk yeah. about the dystopian thing um, first, and then we can talk about bias because the paper has sort of, I think, like several, I think genuinely new things to say about about algorithmic um about algorithmic bias um and f fewer new things to say about the gut dystopian reaction um which uh about which i guess what i would say is uh, i think i agree with you that to some people it does feel i don't know dystopian weird icky, the idea that a machine would decide rather than a person. I guess I'll just say one thing that I think has been the success of these sort of, again, self-described, you know, the surprising success, success of these self-described radicals, these prison and police abolitionists, is showing us how dystopian the system we have now is. You know, the system we have now is based at every juncture around human decision-making and human discretion. And it's, I think, largely that human decision-making and human discretion, and also policy, right? Like we, we can't disregard the role of law and you know the, the role of criminal codes and in increasing the level of penalty for various crimes in, in, um, in our massive amount of incarceration we have in this country. But, but human discretion plays a role. And part of what's dystopian about that is human discretion is no more transparent than a machine, right? When a police officer decides to stop somebody on the street, that person doesn't know why. Uh, they can ask why. And here's something a police officer can do that an algorithm doesn't do, which is the police officer can lie, right? The police officer can have a bad reason, a biased reason, an illegal reason, and can invent an ex post justification pretty easily because our system is designed around giving discretion to people like police officers, people like parole boards, people like judges. And so, look, I don't think that I would deny that there is something unsettling about having a machine that you don't understand decide what's going to happen to you. But I think we should like really credit the prison and police abolitionists with, with showing us how, how similar that is to what we do now. Yeah, that's good. So, I mean, and you see this in movies, at least, you know, when it's sort of, we think it's nefarious, like you see parolees going before the parole board and we, you know, you know, you see like the, the blonde haired, blue eyed white woman, you know, looking at the black parole, you know, prisoner, you know, quite suspiciously or with a look of disgust and, and the audience knows, oh, she's racist, and of course she's got. That's of course why he got tonight. So, you know, there's an extent to it. that. That's that's a nice, or that's a sort of standard Hollywood way of showing the dystopian natures of parole bar, parole boards as they stand. Granted, maybe I mean I don't know. In some cases, it's probably exaggeration. In some cases, it's probably exactly right, and everything in between. That's and, a good point, yeah. So, so and, I guess so. Your point is like parole boards. They kind of suck. And even, in the same way, even if it's to your point, right. they're bad at prediction. So in some cases, they're bad in a way that's morally blameworthy. 
in some cases they're bad just by virtue of the limits of human cognition and understanding and ability to predict the future and ability to comprehend the you know the thousands of variables that are at play and how they're going to interact with each other and that's already you know it's a way of saying something like look you might worry we're giving control to the machines and then we're going we're going to lose control but we don't have control in the first place that's an illusion because you think that these these people have a good grip on things when in fact they don't I think that's right. And, and I will tell you how bad humans are at this stuff across these different empirical studies of humans' ability to predict things like, you know, who's carrying an illegal weapon, who will commit crimes if not, if not incarcerated. And comparing those to algorithms, humans in general do roughly as well as chance. So at parole, at predicting who will commit crimes. If you think that what parole boards are doing is yeah. making a release decision based on who needs to be incarcerated. Yeah. to prevent them from committing more crimes. They are no better than, than, a, flip of a, coin. than a flip of a coin. And yeah, so I don't know if that's not <laughs> dystopian, I don't, I don't know what is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, look, it's funny. Uh, I mean, I don't know if it's funny, but a lot of the, so I'm trying to push back in, in a way that, you know, makes, I'm trying to articulate concerns for, if you like, deferring to the machines. And a lot of your response, aside from, look, no, no, these computer scientists, these data scientists, they're showing really great results, accurate data. And even if it's not today, right? Even if we take a look at the, the algorithms that you've, that, you know, that the research talks about today, we'll have new ones tomorrow. We'll have more data tomorrow. So even if, even if we say, look, I'm skeptical of those algorithms today, but 10 years from now, that would still be relatively short. A short time frame in the history of you know criminal justice system and presuming that we keep marching on to the future there's lots lots more time left so at some point it seems quite plausible that can be that can be really accurate but the other thing that you keep pushing back on helpfully is i think you're saying look reed you your benchmark is off you have an overly idealized conception of what the criminal justice system looks like in fact it's really shitty it's not necessarily because there are bad people i mean i take it that this is, and this is a point that you emphasized in response to me earlier. It's not merely that there are bad apples, though there are. There are also, you know, just limited human capacities to, to deal with these kinds of questions. And we do the best that we can. We muddle through, but by and large, we do a really bad job. And, and there's good, re you know, so, so one of the reasons why we shouldn't be so dubious that we can do better with machine learning is that the benchmark for better than is not that high because we're pretty bad at the criminal justice system. Yeah, so I think that's right. And, and it's a combination of the way you described it, which is we're pretty bad at it. But the other side of the same coin might just be to say, well, it's a really hard problem. Crime is an extremely hard sure. problem. Like we want to have civil liberties. We don't want to have police stopping people. We don't want to have, we don't want to send people to prison, right? These are all things we sort of wouldn't do if we didn't need to, or at least I would hope we wouldn't do if we didn't need to. And the fact that we need to do them means we need to do them under extremely difficult epistemic conditions. Yeah. And so even a, in a perfect world where there were no bad apples and every police officer, every judge, every parole officer was, you know, rightly motivated and, and trying their best, we would just have serious limitations on yeah. what we can know, what we can review at the time and ex post. Um, you know, I think our legal system has 
for you know hundreds or maybe thousands of years slowly evolved toward being about as good as we can be given our current you know yeah. technology at doing this and so look i'm not purporting to solve all of our problems right of course of course uh, uh but what i want to say is in this difficult world and under these difficult conditions you know we, we have a choice we can make hard decisions under difficult conditions and send we have two million people in jail in, in prisons in the united states right now or we can make difficult decisions hard decisions under difficult epistemic conditions and have i don't know half that many people in prison yeah so, uh, okay let me ask one last question i think or one, one, let me come at this from a slightly different angle we fast forward something like your policy get get put into place i imagine that you know you're not suggesting that we just flip a switch and we just you know defer to the algorithms probably there's some pilot programs it gets rolled out slowly we keep monitoring and checking to make sure that we're doing all right so maybe the abolition takes place over the course of you know five years a decade i don't know but you know there's going to be some there's going to be irresponsible and responsible rollout of this kind of thing but let's assume that it gets rolled out in some way or other so fast forward 10 years or something along those lines I guess another thing that I'm a little bit worried about is something like a loss of flexibility, like something like the law is going to be applied with draconian rigor. You know, I'm a little bit worried that we're just not going to be able to move. I guess I'm worried about too much surveillance and, and too firm an application of the law, if that makes sense. I mean, you know, people people go, you know, 50 miles an hour in a 35 mile per hour zone. But of course, the 35 mile per hour limit is ridiculous and you know, it's a four-lane highway, and for some reason there's a ridiculously low limit. And I'm glad that people can sort of bend the rules there. You know, there, there's got to be lots of places where the you want you want to allow the rules to bend in some way. I also think this is slightly this is coming from a slightly different direction. There's you know, in some cases you might think that there are extenuating circumstances, and so I don't know something like mercy is appropriate. Um, where I'm thinking of mercy as sort of like a suspension of the rules in a way as an act of generosity or compassion or empathy or something along those lines. So I don't know. I guess my question is something like, is there something incompatible between algorithmic abolitionism and permitting that kind of flexibility, that kind of mercy? And if it is incompatible, is that fine? Because we shouldn't have that stuff anyway. <laughs> we shouldn't have that yeah. flexibility anyway. So to your first question, is it incompatible? I think the answer is maybe, but not certainly. So one thing we know, you mentioned, you know, rolling out pilot programs. We've had a very small number of pilot programs where uh, jurisdictions have incorporated algorithms into some criminal sentencing or criminal enforcement contexts. And at least one of them, the state of Virginia did this uh, for their post-trial sentencing decisions. And what they did was implement a system where uh, anyone who's convicted of felony, I think. I think it's not misdemeanor um, crimes. But anyone who's convicted of a sufficiently serious crime for which they're maybe going to go to prison, the sending, they go through, they, they run through one of these algorithms, they get a risk score of high or low, or they're graded, they're not just binary. And then ju the, judge, the judge gets it as part of the package that the judge sees when the judge sentences. But the judge doesn't have to do anything particular with it in this, in this system, in this, this, this experiment. So, so that exact kind of you know, you said mercy, you might also say discretion, yeah. gets uh, preserved. The judge can decide whether this is an extenuating circumstance. And there, what you see is that the judges ignore the algorithm entirely. So you see like essentially no change in yeah. who goes to prison and who doesn't. 
And so to that extent, I think there is a serious tension between implementing a policy that forces judges to do something different than what they do now. That's the whole point of algorithmic abolitionism, right? Like judges are not doing the right thing now. Their judgment is not as good as we want it to be and we need to make yeah. them change. And it turns out that just by suggesting changes, judges are, are sufficiently satisfied with their own reasoning that they, so don't, of course, they don't change. Yeah. But this is, asking, this is asking them to take a back seat or just yeah. to get out of the car altogether. <laughs> but then the question is, what do we do? And you can imagine like a whole scale of stuff that we do at the end of the scale is the algorithm decides and no one gets to override it but here are two intermediate options that i think are at least good places to start so one is we could do what we do as to the federal sentencing guidelines so the federal sentencing guidelines give a range of permissible sentences but judges are actually allowed to go outside the range what they have to do when they go outside the range is write a reasoned opinion about why they want to do that. And it turns out that when you make them do that, they don't do it very often, right? Mm. So it imposes, I don't know, either sufficient cost on doing it, or maybe if you're an optimist, makes them sufficiently reflective about when they want to do it or not, that they use that power to, to deviate from essentially an algorithm sparingly only when they only when they're really convinced they could do better so i would be very happy to at least start there for mm -hmm. algorithms and see how how that changes judicial behavior the next step after that but before we get to you know algorithms aside and nobody gets to deviate could be to make judges not only say why they're deviating but make a prediction right because if we're again if we're convinced by this abolitionist argument that like the only justifiable reason for ruining someone's life by putting them in prison is that we need to do it to prevent something worse from happening. And we think algorithms are pretty good at predicting whether something worse is going to happen. Then we should hold judges feet to the fire a little bit in those instances where they think they know better, right? So not only should judges say why this is a devi deviation, but they should give a probabilistic prediction. They could say, you know, the algorithm says this person is 30% likely to commit a violent felony in the next two years. I think there's something going wrong in the algorithm in this instance. My prediction is that they're 5% likely. And then we could just see in the long run whether judges are good at identifying those exceptions, right? Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. One thing we haven't gotten to yet, which you you flagged early in the conversation is that you have a different way of thinking about bias or you want to challenge the way that we think about bias um now so yeah what is that what's your what's your beef with how we think about bias and what's what's the better way yeah so i have a beef not with how we think about bias always but specifically algorithmic bias and specific specifically algorithmic bias when we're doing abolitionist policy so let me say what, what I mean by that. There's and a big so, debate. So to be clear, when you say abolished policy, you just mean we're trying really, really hard to drastically reduce the effects, the negative effects of the criminal justice system on people unnecessarily. Yeah, and not just the negative effects, but reduce how much of it we do. Like not not right, do the same how, amount of prison, we, but make prison right. nicer, but like no, 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 yeah. do less prison. Sorry, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. That, yes, okay. <laughs> yeah. So there's like there's a, a big standard literature on algorithmic bias. You, I think, probably read all some of it, a lot of it maybe. You may know that that there's actually like there's like a mathematical impasse we've reached in that literature, right? Sure, there are incompatible mm -hmm. metrics for how you measure fairness. 
Yeah, like, and, and they're 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 can't scroll well. Yeah, you can't scroll on all yeah. of them at the same time. So you're left with this uh, question: What's the appropriate metric to use for this particular use case? And that's just this, you know, qualitative ethical decision. Yeah, yeah it's decision. a super hard problem. All all of the metrics seem plausible for various reasons, mm-hmm. and you, you just mathematically cannot optimize for all of them simultaneously. Right. Okay, that's a really hard problem. But I guess one thing we'll, I should say before I dive into like what's different about when we're doing uh, algorithmic policy is I actually think there's good evidence that even even as to, to any of those metrics you prefer, the people who say algorithms are biased along my, my X preferred metric, they're, they're right, right? They, there are different distributional effects, racial, socioeconomic, there have to be. But one thing that is, is just true most of the time for most algorithms is even when we're thinking in this traditional way about the distributional impact of algorithms, pick your preferred metric and they're still better than, than humans, right? So mm-hmm. if you're asking about what's called predictive parity, so does a, does a score of X for a person of one racial group imply the same expected number of crimes as the same score X for a person of another racial group? Algorithms just do much better than humans along that distributional bias metric. But I do think there's something weird about thinking just in terms of the distributional impacts of algorithms when you're bolting them onto a policy that is going to radically reduce the amount of prison we're doing, the amount of policing we're doing. Because when you do much less prison, when you put many fewer people in prison, you are also almost inevitably going to be putting many fewer people in prison because of their race. Mm-hmm. So I'll do like a quick thought experiment that is not what I'm proposing any algorithm today would do, but the math is easy to sort of sure. to sort of illustrate the point. So imagine you live in a world where you have a you live in a country with a million people in prison. And in that country you have some minority racial minority group that accounts for like 15% of the population in the, in the whole country, but they account for, let's say 20% of the prison population. Mm-hmm. According to one way of thinking about fairness, you would say, well, that system of imprisonment of incarceration is biased to the tune of five percentage points. Sure. Now imagine you impose a policy where algorithms decide who goes to prison only based on who is likely to commit further crimes, we do the minimum amount necessary. Yeah. So in the status quo world, the system of incarceration is biased to the tune of about five percentage points. But that's 5% of a million people who are in prison, which means that there are 50,000 people going to prison because of their race, right? That's like the the number of people we would attribute, like the, the racial unfairness of prison like impacting them. If you move to the, the, the algorithmic world where you only have 10,000 people in prison, well, that world is biased to the tune of 10 percentage points, but 10% of 10,000 is 1,000. So that's a world where 1,000 rather than 50,000 people are being imprisoned because of their race, right? And so I think that is an important thing to ask about when we ask about how biased the system is, not just the distributional impacts, but like the number of people who are being treated badly 
because of the color of their skin. And so the paper proposes uh, a metric for thinking about this. I call it bias impact. And one thing that happens when you use algorithms, not just as a way of like switching around who goes to jail, but reducing dramatically the, the, the number of people who go to jail or who get searched or who get arrested, then even if we can't all agree on a single metric for like distributional fairness, right? Even if there are these mathematically incompatible ways of thinking about it, it turns out that like pick any of them, all of them have a much lower bias impact or, you know, bias impact is much smaller, no matter your theory of fairness, when you use a policy to reduce a lot, the okay. amount of prisoner policing you're doing. Yeah. Okay. So, so, okay. World one, there's a lot more people in prison, including for instance, black people, they might be 15% of the population, but 20% are in jail. That seems out of whack. Let's, let's suppose yeah. that's, let's suppose that's the case. And then there's this other world, far fewer people, far fewer people imprisoned, but now it's a higher percentage. So of that, it's, you know, it's a much, much smaller pie, but a greater percent of that pie Correct. is, in, is, in, uh, is yep. in prison. So Correct. Okay. And then I guess your point is something like, I mean, maybe I take the, the word bias out of it for a second, because I find maybe that's a little bit confusing. I say, what's the more just world or what's the more, what's the What's the better world from the perspective of justice or something along those lines? And it looks like surely the world in which there are fewer black people in prison by virtue of being black is better. That seems right to me. If the, the word bias is kind of weird because bias almost invokes distributions, but you could ask like a right, more exactly. like a more old school discrimination question. It's like how many people are being discriminated against, right? Yeah, yeah. How many people like go in front of a judge and if they were white, would not go to jail, but because they're black, do go to jail. And the second world, the algorithmic world, is a world where, like, you know, you know, one fifth as many people yeah, yeah. are being discriminated against. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, we think about these things. We tend to think about bias in the AI world as something like how 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 goods or pains, goods or bads, are distributed across subpopulations, and we want that distribution to be fair. And we think that's the foundational question. You know, where these, we've got these models, they're in the business of doling out goods or services or goods and bads and services or disservices. And we want it to be a fair distribution. So that has to do with something with the proportionality. But you're pointing out, look, that's not necessarily the fundamental question that we've got to face. What we really want to do is decrease the quantity of discrimination in the world. And we might be able to do that while, while disproportionately uh, you know, harming some communities relative to others. Yeah, yeah. The point world. is just that the, the distribution, account. yeah, on everyone's account, including the people who might be who might yeah. face the most discrimination, right? You know, if you're if you're a a person of color, like, do you want to go before a sentencing, yeah, judge algorithm, yeah. judge algorithm pair in the world where you are, you know, there there's there's fifty thousand people who are being sent to jail every year because they're black, or the world where there's ten? And I think the answer is the second one. Yeah. And that that that's a great thought experiment. I mean, you know, one of the things that I that I've always tried to stress with people is that bias, how you distribute goods, is an issue is a, is a subset of issues concerning justice and fairness. Yeah, and this seems totally right. If you just collapse those, if you just think that oh, justice issues are just about distributional issues, you lose that distinction. Um, there's all sorts of ways of being unjust or unfair that have. I mean, this is just a separate point. All sorts of ways of being unjust or unfair that have nothing to do with race. 
Totally. And, and even in the racial world, like, you know, so, you know, I, I write about discrimination in, in various contexts, one of which is affirmative action. And one thing that's striking when you go back and read Supreme Court cases about affirmative action from like the mid 20th century is that, well, how do like steel unions know that they need to do affirmative action in order to like fairly represent or, or fairly employ, em employ, you know, to maximal profit for their own, for their own purposes, right? Like get the best, the best steel workers hired out. Like, how do we know that they need to do affirmative action to accomplish that? Well, they just go ask the like foremen in the steel mills or the, the union officials who are hiring out people. And the union officials just say, I won't hire out any black steel workers mm. until all the white steel workers are, are hired out. Mm. Like that's the way we used to think about discrimination and ra racial fairness because the unfairness was so on the surface, right? Like, sure, yeah. like, like people were just, were just willing to say, well, of course I'm a racist. Everybody's a racist, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the shift to thinking about distribution is actually an effect of uh, a long run trend against people being open or even conscious of their biases in this way. So when you go to a world where either people mostly unconsciously, let's say, disfavor, let's say, black job applicants, or consciously, but know that they're not allowed to say it, right, where there's not this, this evidence of the discrimination, right, well, then these other theories, other legal theories of racial discrimination, including what we now call disparate impact, which is, which is a, distrib a distributional question. It's like, what's the proportion of strong black candidates who got callbacks versus strong white yeah, candidates. Yeah. So it's almost like we had this kind of, you know, in this impoverished information environment, we had to start thinking uh, a lot more about distributions uh, in order to get at things like racial fairness. But they're not like the first order thing. They're not the main right. thing. They're like, they're, they're the thing we had to use when, when the main thing got harder to find. And mm. so insofar as we can like go back to thinking about the main thing, like, how many people are being treated differently because of the color of their skin? Uh, when we have the opportunity to do that, I think we should do that. And that's what bias impact tries to get at. Yeah. I mean, the more that I research this stuff and I talk to researchers, the more I think we've just got bias completely wrong in, in the AI space, that the way that we talk, the way that people talk about it, the way that regulations talk about it, about the biased algorithm as though it's an intrinsic feature of the algorithm. I had this conversation with David Danks not so long ago that Look, the model is the, the the model is part of a whole. We care about the impacts of the whole. If the biased model is part of a whole that has less discriminatory impacts, keep the bias. Then, then without the biased model, keep the biased model. And it just seems like yeah. Then in light of the thing that you're saying, that we need to think about things like racial justice in a way that doesn't simply boil down to how fairly we distribute goods and bads and services. Yeah, it, we should ask like get it wrong. how much badness we're doing, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> how much we're doing how much badness we're doing on the basis of race or gender or gender identity or you know all all these all these things that we worry about. Yeah. All right. Well, great to talk to you. There's there's so much here we could we could talk for many hours. You'll have to come back. We'll talk about this more. Other stuff. I'd be happy to. Great. Thanks so much, Peter. Yeah, of course. It's been great.